All right, ladies and gentlemen, good evening. <clears throat> Thanks for coming out in these blizzardy conditions. It cleared up just enough that, we could, that I could make it. It was close. Yesterday, I would not have been able to make it. So this is great. Um, first, an announcement, a brief announcement. Uh, last year, I did the Life Philosophical Retreat, um, and I'm going to do that again. Uh, it went so well last year, I was actually hesitant to do it again. So I want to say, uh, for the people who came last year, thank you, because it was, it was amazing. Uh, but they encouraged me to offer the class again. So if you are interested, there's information on, the, on my website about the class and what we do and sort of what the three days is all about. But it's a big three-day class in June, at the end of June. So uh, a couple of people have already signed up who couldn't enroll last year. So if you're interested, you might want <coughs> to sign up sooner than later because it's, it's maybe about half full already. And I just announced it this minute. So um, yeah, kind of, kind of crazy. I don't know what's going on, but the word is out somehow. So, all right, so um, tonight, Kierkegaard. Now, it's important to note that it would probably drive Kierkegaard mad to be in a German philosophy series, ha, because um, he was a, a Danish fundamentalist, specifically of the language. Um, and it's one of those telling facts about history and how things have changed, that when he wanted to write his dissertation, because he hated German, and he hated, uh, and he loved the Danish language, and he was a Danish fundamentalist. He wanted to write his dissertation in Danish. I um, mean, he had to petition the king to do this, which is just bizarre to think about. And yet, this is what happened. So he petitioned the king to allow him to write his dissertation in the native language of his country. But what this sounded like at the time was a dodge, right? Because the the language of education was Latin and German. Anybody who was going to learn anything of value was going to know Latin and German. And so it sounded like you were trying to get out of having to be educated. So they said, all right, seeing as how you're in Denmark and all, we'll let you write your dissertation in Danish, but you have to defend it orally in Latin. So this was, the, this was to make sure that you actually had an education, right? Because if you just do it in Danish, you're probably not educated. So this is, I mean, all, every element of this suggests how, how different things are. But the language of education at the time was uh, Latin and German, and German was the predominant language of philosophy, particularly Hegel. Um, and so when Kierkegaard did this, he was really emphasizing his Danishness and his resistance to the German philosophical tradition. But that's why he's so important, is because while he wanted to write in Danish, uh, and he did write in Danish, he was writing against the German philosophical tradition as he understood it, which of course puts him firmly in the German philosophical tradition. Uh, he was also at war with various theological ideas in his lifetime that were primarily coming from the, the, you know, the Reformation, Luther, Calvin, and all that. And so his intellectual life was steeped in the German tradition, cultural, philosophical, theological, even at the same time that he was fighting against that as aggressively as he could. Um, but it also raised the interesting question that in his lifetime, he was virtually unknown. I mean, known a little bit, but if you made a list of important European thinkers in the year he died, which was 1855, um, <clears throat> he would not have made the cut. In fact, it's, oh, it's, if you told people that, oh, in 50 years, in 100 years, he's going to be one of the most important thinkers of all time, they would have laughed at you. Like, that guy? That guy? Uh, but if you look at the back page, here's a list, a brief list, not compiled by me, by the way, compiled by other scholars. Um, and they basically said it is too, it's just impossible to list all the people who were influenced by Kierkegaard. Um, but they made a short list here, and they said, how about some important ones? Kafka, Emmanuel Levinas, Jacques Derrida, Gabriel Marcel, Lev Shestov, Paul Tillich, Martin Buber, Georgor Lukash, Karl Barth, George Bataille, Rudolf Bultmann, Karl Jaspers, Michael Henry, and Wittgenstein. Uh, most of them, with a few exceptions, wrote specifically about Kierkegaard or argued specifically with Kierkegaard. I mean, so it wasn't even like, oh, we were influenced vaguely by his ideas. They were like, oh, no, we're quoting Kierkegaard, we're arguing with Kierkegaard. So what I want to explore tonight is how this obscure um, Danish writing, I mean, the obscure language, obscure thinker writing an obscure language in Denmark, which at, in Europe, Denmark is sort of the equivalent of, you know, Nome, Alaska, 
right, in the 1800s. It's just sort of this, what's, you know, Copenhagen where, right, on a map? We don't know, right? It, it's not, you know, something is rotten in the state of Denmark. Why? Because that's in the middle of no place, right? It was a, it was a fantastical world to set Hamlet in. It was, it was a place to just, where? Oh, well, where's some place that we can do whatever we want? Oh, Denmark. Nobody knows anything about there, right? So, uh, you know, so that sort of sense of what, and then a hundred years later, it's, it's Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard, Kierkegaard. And to understand that transformation uh, is what this is about. Now, um, I ended, or last time I talked about Nietzsche, and I said in the uh, opening sections of Thus Spake Zarathustra, Nietzsche comes down the mountain, and he encounters this monk who's living in the woods, and the monk says, hey, don't go down to the people. Stay here with me and, and sing praises of him to God and make poems to God, and life will be good. You're just going to waste your time. And Nietzsche says, oh, no, I'm, I'm on my way, and walks off. And when he gets a little farther on, he says, has that monk not heard that God is dead? Now, now, it's important to note that Nietzsche did not say, I've killed God. What he said was, God was dead. And the monk who hadn't heard this was, in fact, Kierkegaard. So this is the thing. And then, of course, they didn't know each other at the time. I mean, they're, they're, they're near contemporaries. And so, what not, but really, that was Kierkegaard. He didn't know it, but that was. Because what happens when you get a Reformation inside the Catholic Church is you split the fundamental notion of a unitary system in which you can believe. And then within the, outside the Catholic churches in the Protestant tradition, the Reformation, you get Calvinism and Lutheranism and Pietism. I mean, the list is endless, and it's just been multiplying. Calvin, you know, Methodism, Presbyterianism, you know, Baptism, Baptists. I mean, it just goes on and on and on. You have all these different sects. There used to be one. One true God, one true church, one true way. Now, inside of that one, nobody agreed about anything. It was not like this was an organized, unified whole where everybody said yes to everything else. They fought about everything for the entire history of the Catholic Church. Ah, but it was all within the notion of we're all fighting within one box. But we agree about the box. So that was okay. And when you get the Reformation, you shatter that fundamental structure of belief. And so Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, all to varying degrees, were struggling with that. And because they were participants in and children of the Enlightenment, that struggle tended to come to them in the form of reason. We're going to think our way out of this. We're going, to, we're going to try and find some way to get back to where we were, to the truth, to the ineffable, to the absolute, to the world spirit. <coughs> You know, different names, different places uh, from different philosophers. But the idea is we can get there somehow and we can think our way there. Even, even that's the magic of Kant's critique of pure reason. He says, well, you can't really reason your way there, but with reason, then you know that you are there. It's this weird, like, attempt to salvage both. Um, and Nietzsche, again, announces, no, no, God is dead, and says, now we've got to go with that. What do you do? now that God is dead. Kierkegaard is the guy there who's going, no, no, God is not dead. He's still alive, and you can't get to him with reason. And so his attempt is to somehow patch back together that which had been shattered, but without reason. He wasn't anti-reason. He just said that you can't actually achieve what you need which is to get back to this unitary faith in God with reason. At some level, it just becomes this leap of faith. So it's faith and grace, and you're right back to Augustine and you know, the, the, the sort of ancient church father business again. But what I think is interesting, or many interesting things about this, um, is in working through this, he, he basically lays out the foundation of three quarters of modern philosophy. Uh, they, everybody else dropped God, but he laid the groundwork, as we'll see, for what they kept, because he articulated the problem so well. Um, but another aspect of his work and his thinking here, as he tries to salvage God, is he's not actually that much of a philosopher. He's really more of a poet, writer, thinker, because part of what he saw as the problem was this attempt to create a system. So he thought that, which is true, Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, the big Germans, are trying to create 
a system that sort of totalize and explain everything. And he's like, no, no, you've already got that. That's God. And there's no explaining it. There's just leaping into it. So he's anti-system. So it's this very strange mix of, of sort of, he's rational, but he's against the rational belly to leap towards faith. And he's, he wants to salvage God, but in this unique way, as we'll see, a very different way of trying to solve this problem. Um, and he's writing to people who are paying absolutely no attention to him. I mean, they just, people had no use for him because he was just sort of crazy. So biographically, his biography is pretty straightforward. Uh, Kierkegaard had a wonderful life and did not know it. See, this is the, this is the key to understanding Kierkegaard is it, 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 anything at all, like the least trivial thing that happened to him made his mind explode and he'd be like, oh my God, I've left the ideal world and I'm encapsulated in this place of doubt and I've got to find the perfect ideal existence and then I can appeal to God. And it's like, but you look at what happened, it's like, hey, you were late to work. What the hell's the problem, right? You're just, you know, someone would write a mild criticism of his essay and he'd be like, I have to rethink my entire foundation of my existence. You're like, no, that wasn't even a harsh criticism. It was just really sort of friendly criticism, helpful observation. Nope, he's going to go back and rework the whole thing. So he lived this, he, I mean, he had little struggle with his father. He had an unsuccessful marriage or, or, or in relationship, struggled with women as, as many people. I mean, the cultures at this time didn't not help women or men at all very much, particularly not women. Um, certainly didn't help Kierkegaard. Um, and he was independently wealthy. I mean, wealthy. He was of independent means. He didn't have to work, which is one reason his writing is so crazy, because he didn't have to try and make money off of it. And so he just went nuts, and he published things all over the place, often at his own expense, which then people promptly ignored. Uh, so, you know, and, and he wrote voluminously, voluminously, like 16, 17, 18 volumes of his uh, sort of um, memoirs, right, sort of just diary, I guess. He had a long, long, long running diary entries, and it's just so clear, everything in there. He's just racked, racked. Um, and he keeps coming back to this idea of faith and faith. But the first thing I want to note is I think it's impossible for anybody who has faith to write this much about faith. <laughs> right? You just can't write hundreds if not thousands of pages about the centrality of faith if you have faith. I just, he just, I just don't think it's possible. And, and it's pretty clear that what he was struggling with was the notion that he really thought that he should have faith. But he just could never get around to having any. Right, and so this, and but that, but he sort of lived the struggle of what happens when the whole system gets shattered. He wanted to maintain this concept of God, but he could never quite get there. Um, and but it was a particular kind of God, finally. And then we'll look at some of these passages here. And his his father and grandfather, I believe, was actually a, a preacher or theologically oriented, um, but they were in the Pietist tradition, which is sort of a. Um, in fact, Kant, similar to Kant, had the same background. Very humble, big emphasis on the fact that you're sinning, regardless that you're really a guilty, guilty, bad person, right? Like I said, that's why I think he had a, he had a wonderful life and didn't know it because he lived in a tradition that told him he was terrible. Um, they didn't mean to be bad. They didn't mean that, right? They just thought that was the human condition. Um, and so he was always trying to perfect his way out of the human condition. Uh, I, and I, this quote I love that kept coming to mind when I read Kierkegaard, which is, you'll never hate yourself into being someone you love. And I think this is really where Kierkegaard was. He was hating himself as hard as he could, and it didn't seem to get him to love himself, right? It just doesn't seem to work. Uh, and if anybody ever ran that experiment, it's Kierkegaard. And so I think we can say pretty much it's not going to work. So uh, he was in a particular tradition. And so on one hand, um, he's trying to rethink an approach to God, but the God he's trying to get to is a very traditional, very conservative, specifically pietist, or whether you want to think more broadly Calvinist, uh, type of God. No use for the church, as we'll see. Thought the church was a total waste of space and energy and effort, um, which is weird, right? So I want the Calvinist God, but I don't want any church associated with him. It's sort of, it's the argument that Luther, I talked about this, that Luther taken to the logical extreme, that you can have direct access to God. Kierkegaard takes that to heart. So how does this obscure Danish writer uh, pursuing 
practically a medieval theological tradition of God, come to be this core influential thinker on virtually every modern philosopher you've heard of, and many of you haven't, as well as writers like Kafka. We'll look at some of these quotes, and I mean, there, and there's an infinite number of quotes from him because his collected works is 30 plus volumes, right? So he really wrote. Um, oh, one safety note before I read these, by the way. Um, he did not believe in systems, and so he published under pseudonyms, uh, uh, anonymously, he would publish multiple works at one time that contradicted each other so that you couldn't really tell which was the position that Kierkegaard was taking because he'd have one under a pseudonym, one under his name, and one anonymously that all argued with each other. And you're like, all from Kierkegaard. By the way, this is something that Derrida did, and I always thought that came from Derrida. Uh, that they, I'm like, wow, what a great idea to publish multiple perspectives, three books at once, for instance, he did so that you couldn't quite keep track of where his thinking was. And it turns out that he stole that directly from Kierkegaard. And I hadn't known that. It's like, oh, that's what Kierkegaard was doing. That's great. What a, what a great thing to lift. So even his style influenced people. So anytime you're quoting from Kierkegaard, you always have to sort of be clear that he's not making a direct systematic argument like a, a philosopher normally would. He's very much in the Socratic tradition. You have an idea, he's going to attack it in five ways. And when you get done, you're not sure what you think anymore. But you don't know what Kierkegaard thinks either, right? Like Socrates kept, many of the dialogues in with Socrates just going, well, I guess that means we don't know anything. Good night, right? And you're just like, that's not that helpful. Uh, so Kierkegaard is much more in that tradition of, of I want to critique, I want to get people thinking, I want to have dialogue, but I don't want to have a system, a dogma, a church. I want God, no church. Hard to pull off, but that was his goal. So anyway, having said that, first quote, this is from his journals. What I really need to get clear about, what I must do, not what I must know, except insofar as knowledge must precede every act. What matters is to find a purpose, to see what it really is that God wills that I shall do. The crucial thing is to find the truth, which is truth for me, to find the idea which I am willing to live and die. So if you're at all familiar with existential philosophy, there it is. This is why Kierkegaard is considered the first and father of existentialism. It's because he's this notion of, you know, we're born without a purpose. We're humans. And so if we don't have a purpose, well, then how do you know what to do? So the first step in the existential crisis, by the way, is trying to figure that out. And you only know that you found the answer when it, you're willing to live or die by it. This is sort of the standard that, it, that is often set. So if you read uh, uh, Sartre or de Beauvoir or Camus, that's why a lot of their novels and plays and essays center on death or people killing people. Uh, Andre Malraux's Man's Fate famously begins with an assassination. The main character stabs somebody to death. Beautiful scene. Um, and And because that's what they figured was core, right? Life and death, all right? That's something we can at least believe in, maybe. But so many of their work center on that because of the way Kierkegaard articulated it. But for Kierkegaard, he wants to know what God wants him to do. Existentialism just got rid of the God business. They said, exactly that passage, take out God. Now you're really stuck, right? Because you don't have anybody to appeal to. But what, what Kierkegaard, so he articulates this core problem of identity and being, Hugh, Heidegger, and Wittgenstein, by the way. Um, but his escape is always, oh, some way of reaching God, which he never figures out how to do, like I mentioned. Um, but for him, if he could do that, then he would have a solution to the problem of being in existence. What all these later thinkers did is said, well, you're not going to get it through God, so we have the right problem, but the wrong solution. But almost everything he wrote was problem, and almost nothing was solution, so that's why he was so influential. He just sticks God in all over the place. It's sort of a magic card. So another quote here. Let others complain that the age is wicked. My complaint is that it is paltry, for it lacks passion. 
Men's thoughts are thin and flimsy like lace. They are themselves pitiable like lace makers. The thought of their hearts are too paltry to be sinful. For a worm it might be regarded as a sin to harbor such thoughts, but not for a being made in the image of God. Their lusts are dull and sluggish, their passions sleepy. So he's raising this idea, right? Okay, what happens? What's going on in Copenhagen at this time? Well, you're getting this sort of the merchant class, the rise of the middle class, the, uh, the bourgeoisie, if you will. And what he's seeing is like, oh, everybody goes to church, but they don't burn heretics anymore. They don't march to war and kill the people over there who believe other stuff. Right? What kind of religion is that? <laughs> you know, at least people used to be fervent. At least they used to have fervor. They used to get fired up. They used to do things. They didn't just go on Wednesday afternoons and Sunday and sit quietly and go, okay, thanks very much, nice, and go away. And go, great, I've got religion. Because that's not religion. That's just sort of social theater. Right? And this irritated him to no end. He said, no, you've got to go and wrestle with God yourself. Old Testament God. Get out there and fight with him. Burning bushes. Right? Columns of fire. That's what you want. That's what you have to do. But only you can do that. You can't send out some intermediary to sort of work it all out for you, and you just go, yeah, okay, great, good, good, it's all good, we're all good, that's fine. And so it's this, so we had this weird double move where he really assaulted the church continuously in the name of God. Again, he's like this Old Testament prophet coming out of the desert, right, going, you guys are doing it wrong. And everybody just said, yeah, you're nuts. We're not listening to this. But he really believed in this notion of engaged passion. That's why he said he's not so much a thing. He's like a poet, like a, practically like a romantic poet as much as he is a philosopher. He's like, look, if it's not firing you up, if it's not something to live and die by, then just, it's certainly not God. Are you a worm? Do you worship a worm? If you worship a mighty God, you should be mighty. Kierkegaard looked around and didn't see mighty people and said, well, they're doing it wrong. This made him popular, by the way, uh, as, you, as, you can, as you can well imagine. Uh, his, his critiques were either totally ignored or were criticized for being sort of extremist and volatile because, you know, sort of extremist and volatile. But also notion he would also write passages that would argue the other side. But from his journals, it's clear he really felt that strongly, right? That, that you know, this notion that there should be fervor, there should be passion, there should be inspiration, and that if you don't have that, then you're doing something wrong. Um, uh, another quote here. One sticks one's finger into the soil to tell by the smell in what land one is. I stick my finger in existence. It smells of nothing. By the way, this right there is Heidegger. I mean, if you want to know where Heidegger comes from, is that sentence. I stick my finger into existence or being. And I smell nothing, hence one of his works, Being and Nothingness, is directly lifted from Kierkegaard, as is much else that Heidegger wrote, by the way. Um, where am I? Who am I? How came I here? What is this thing called the world? What does this world mean? Who is it that has lured me into this world? Why was I not consulted? Why not made acquainted with its manners and customs? Right, everybody has felt this way, right? It's, like at some point, there should have been some like helpful guide, right? <laughs> Welcome to the world, you know, step to the right. Here's a little manual. You'll want to read that and consult, right? Uh, yeah, but, but there isn't. He's like, why was I not consulted? Why not made acquainted with its manners and customs? Instead of throwing me into the ranks as if I had been bought by a kidnapper, a dealer in souls. How did I not obtain an interest in this big enterprise they call reality? Why should I have an interest in it? Is it not a voluntary concern? And if I am to be compelled to take part in it, where is the director? I should like to make a remark to him. <laughs> right? Like, hey, hey, by the way, it's also important to remember, Kierkegaard is funny. I mean, he's a really great writer. I mean, one of the things he achieved was he's, a, he's an important stylist. In Danish, I mean, he, he is a great writer, right? Where's a, I have a remark I would like to make to him, right? I have a few comments to toss his way. Is there no director? Whether shall I turn with my complaint? Right, and so, so, so this is, 
Again, this is the existential crisis. This is Heidegger's questions of being. We find ourselves in being, right? All of a sudden we discover that we're here, right? The dawning of consciousness, which is slow, right? It takes time. And all of a sudden you're like, whoa, I'm here. I'm in time. I exist. What the hell is going on? And that is the central core crisis of being. Where does my being come from? What is it for? What does it mean? What am I supposed to be doing with this being? Where's the director? I have some comments, right? I mean, just the, the, the what is going on around here. And to articulate it this clearly is, is again, Heidegger, Wittgenstein, again, clearly here. I mean, just straight up. Wittgenstein called him the saint. He just thought, which, and if you know Wittgenstein's work, they are very close in the tenor of their being. They're both sort of monks that found themselves in a period that didn't really have monks. Um, and so, so Kierkegaard is just pondering this out. He's asking these really fundamental questions that probably most of us have asked, but he doesn't stop asking it. And he never shies away. Like I said, because he'll approach things from every side, he really tears into it. He'll make an argument and he'll go, what's the counter-argument? And he'll make the counter-argument. That's why he has a, one of the works is either or, right? Either this or that. He takes both sides, right? Um, and so, but, but look, I mean, you just list, I mean, again, that's at least half of modern philosophy in that paragraph. Where did existence come from? Why are we here? What does it mean? What should I do? Ontology, epistemology, and ethics. Bang, bang, bang. Central questions laid out perfectly clearly. But he's so powerful because the traditional, which is what Nietzsche was trying to explain, look, the traditional system is gone. You've got to do something new. And Kierkegaard is like, no. The traditional system is there. Humans have just left it. So he, he, saw, he sort of sees the flip side of Nietzsche's argument. God's not dead, people have died. Nietzsche says God is dead, so now people can live. Right? Nietzsche sees it as a weight lifted off of people, and Kierkegaard sees it as a weight put on people. Now you don't have an answer to all these questions. But again, I would argue that the only reason you can ask these so clearly is he has no faith at all. Because right? somebody who has faith says, where do we come from? I can tell you where. I have faith. And he, he, never, he, he says that at times, but mostly he says this. I mean, by mostly, I mean 15 volumes or so. Uh, I mean, it's, it is a lot of Kierkegaard. I've not read all of Kierkegaard by any stretch of the imagination, but you, you don't have to read all that much to get the general sense. Um, but notice, you know, why was I not consulted? Why not made acquainted with manners and customs as if I had been bought by a kidnapper, a dealer in souls? Right? I, it's, 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 I was someplace better. I was someplace else that made sense. And now I've been thrust into this place that makes no sense. I've been kidnapped. I've been trapped. But again, if you look at the details of his life, he had a great life. Educated, handsome, intelligent. I mean, incredibly educated for his time period. Moderately well off. Did not have to work. But felt kidnapped. Right? Just could not embrace the world, could not accept its fallen, sorry, shabby state, according to him. Um, there's actually a passage where he talks about uh, uh, Mozart's opera Don Juan, and he says it's the perfect character with the perfect music. And so in art, which again, the, the same influence that you see in Hegel and Schopenhauer, they all talk about art a lot. He says, is the synthesis of the perfection of the world that you never get in the world. So he looks for an abstraction, a narrative about a character, in the most abstract art form, Mozart opera music, to say that form itself is perfected and that abstract perfection of an abstraction <laughs> is what is real. <laughs> and it's like, what are you talking about? Right? You've got an abstraction of an abstraction, and that's what you think is real? And what's crazy is Don Juan, if you know the opera, he's just lust. Right? He's like human lust incarnated, Mozart in his strong suit, doing something amazing, uh, writing this great opera, 
And so everything that Schopenhauer could not deal with about being human is there. And that's not what, what Kierkegaard saw. I mean, everything that Kierkegaard couldn't deal with about being human is in Mozart's opera, is in that character. But Kierkegaard doesn't look at that. All of that offends him. It's the perfection of the art form of this abstraction. That's what he loved. And you're like, wow, you missed the whole thing. I mean, you know, sort of this weird, like, yeah, the Mo it means great Mozart, right? Great, wow, amazing. But not the character. He sort of liked the character, but only as an idea of a character. Not as, as, a, as a model to try and live by. Um, he was not an embrace your passions kind of guy. He was a feel guilty about your passions kind of guy. He was really good at feeling guilty about his passions. Uh, Don Juan was never noted for guilt, right? He was just not a guilty kind of person. So yeah, that, those tensions are just right throughout his work. Um, and then this longish passage, because it's a, it's a book of it's called The Concept of Anxiety. He also wrote books like Fear and Trembling and The Concept of Anxiety. And one reason I struggle with reading Kierkegaard is because it, I just don't feel that way. I mean, we're just constitutionally different. And so it's hard sometimes when you read a thinker, it's not that they're wrong, it's that their whole tenor of their being, I'm like, what the hell is your problem? Right, but Concept of Anxiety, right? When it is stated in Genesis that God said to Adam, only from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you must not eat, it follows of a matter, of course, that Adam really had not understood this word. For how could he understand the difference between good and evil when this distinction would follow as a consequence of the enjoyment of the fruit? So th this is really important because theologians have been arguing with this point <laughs> since he made it. He's like, you can't tell somebody that something's wrong before they have the concept of wrong. And so... Either God was setting Adam up for the fall already. It's not the snake, it's God. Or the passage just makes no sense. And it's a very powerful critique of the general telling. If you've heard the Garden of Eden stories, like, oh, God made a rule, and they broke the rule because the snake seduced Eve, and of course Eve seduced Adam, it's always the woman's fault, and then they ate the fruit of the tree, and then they found out about good and evil. But if you don't know about good and evil, how do you know not to do something? You have, you have no grounds for, for, for comparison, right? It says, when it is assumed that the prohibition awakens desire, one acquires knowledge instead of ignorance. And in that case, Adam must have had knowledge of freedom because the desire was to use it. The explanation is therefore subsequent. The prohibition induces in him anxiety... For, a for the prohibition awakens in him freedom's possibility. So he's like, before, Adam was doing whatever he wants. Has no idea that freedom exists. Because he has no restrictions. God comes along and gives him a prohibition that he cannot understand. Because he hasn't eaten from the good and evil. But now he knows there's something that he... It's not supposed to do that he could do. Freedom. Freedom. See, this is Kierkegaard's argument. Once you get freedom, you get anxiety. Which, I mean, God, you got to love Kierkegaard for that. You just want to send him a bottle of wine and say, hey, buddy, you know, relax. Uh, but, but it is this great, right, that now you have choice. And then choice carries with it responsibility, and then knowledge, which is the preceding quote, right? Which is where he says, I, I, um, I need insofar as knowledge must precede every act, right? Now Adam needs knowledge. Now he's need, starting to think, well, I've got freedom now. I could do this, but should I do? Oh, now, ah, there you go. Existential crisis is right there. Now notice they have not eaten the fruit yet. So this is where Kierkegaard completely rewrites the Adam and Eve story. He says, it's not the eating of the fruit, it's this. This is the core problem that we struggle with. And it's all God, no snake. <laughs> right? There is no snake here. It's like God just, just presents us with this impossible situation, which Adam, completely unprepared to deal with. Right? All of a sudden, the anxiety of freedom. The, the, and so Adam must have had knowledge of freedom because the desire was to use it. The prohibition induces him anxiety, for the prohibition awakens in him freedom's possibility. 
What passed by innocence as the nothing of anxiety has now entered into Adam, and here again it is a nothing, the anxious possibility of being able. He had no conception of what he is able to do. Otherwise, and this is what usually happens, that which comes later, the difference between good and evil, would have to be presupposed. Only the possibility of being able is present as a higher form of ignorance, as a higher expression of anxiety, because in a higher sense it is both is and is not, because in a higher sense he both loves it and flees it. So A, again Heidegger, both in content and style there, um, so we'll go through that slowly, but B notices this idea of like, look, it's not good and evil, forget that. It's the sudden awareness of this higher abstract sense of do and don't. Could, I could, and I couldn't. And now he has the awareness that he could and that he couldn't. And that's been induced in him. And now he's like, wow. The anxiety of freedom. That is the fall from grace. The fall from grace is not good and evil. The fall from grace is choice, possibility, supposition, human imagination. Adam can imagine that he could eat the apple, and he could imagine that he could not eat the apple before he could not do this. If he wanted to eat the apple, he just ate it. If he didn't want to eat the apple, he didn't. There was no nothing. But now, ooh, that higher awareness. So for Kierkegaard, it's not the awareness or knowledge of good and evil. It's the possibility of freedom. It's the acts associated with that that transfer this huge burden onto the individual. Now, of course, this is happening at the time that you're getting the social revolution, right? Where you're getting greater liberties. You're getting the, you know, French Revolution has happened. The follow-on from the French Revolution, republics are being formed. You know, constitutional monarchies are starting to spring up. The notion of, of the rights, at least for the middle class and the wealthy, is becoming prominent. And, and so all of a sudden, oh, freedom. Everybody's like, freedom is great. Freedom is great. Freedom is wild. Freedom is wonderful. Kierkegaard is like, freedom is the original sin. It's the original human problem. It's the bringer of anxiety. It's the freedom is not the paradise. Freedom is the fall from the paradise. So theologians didn't like this critique because they want to talk about good and evil and the snake and, and Eve. He writes the, he, he rereads it and he says, no, there's no Eve, there's no snake, there's just God and Adam. That's the problem. There was never any other problem. But also, if you're a, like a liberal political thinker, you're not really in love with this. Forget this freedom stuff. It's just anxiety-inducing. You, you've got to figure out how to overcome your freedom, what to do with your freedom. And the best thing to do with this is, of course, to take a leap of faith and embrace God in some way. And so it's a very... Um, anti-social message, which is another reason it appeals a lot, is in, at its core, it's purely individualistic. Only you can make the leap of faith. And by the way, you don't have to make it once. You have to do it all the time. So you, so you can be forgiven by the grace of God, but it's going to happen over and over and over again. You're never done with this, which is classically Kierkegaardian, right? That, that it doesn't, you're not saved and then you're done. It's like, nope, every day it's a new trial. Every day you're going to fail again, and every day you have to take the leap of faith so that God can forgive you again, but then it's going to be another day. It's really, it's, it's sort of depressing. Uh, I, I find it slightly depressing, but, but that notion of individual responsibility, see, this is again carries it through. If you want to get rid of church hierarchy or state hierarchy, where do you put the responsibility? Ah, well, you shift it to yourself. And Kierkegaard, that's what he wants, but he says, note... This is an infinite, essentially unattainable responsibility. You'll never fulfill it. That, again, existential crisis. You have this responsibility, and you're not going to be able to fulfill it. Congratulations. <laughs> so it's, it's sort of wildly individualistic, which a lot of thinkers have run with. Uh, it's, it, but it, it's also sort of this uh, thing that dissolves all possibility of like social cohesion. He's like, we're just going to be a bunch of failed individuals. Um, and again, the only appeal is an individual, not communal appeal, to God directly, and then hope for the best. So again, if you 
like X out the God stuff, there's whole passages of this that just read like Stirner. Stirner, uh, the German philosopher who's just writing this absolute radical critique of individual versus society, entirely in favor of the individual. Kierkegaard is writing very much the same thing. And so while society was moving away from his religious or theological ideas, which were only a small part of it, but it was always the answer, so I, you know, small but necessary and, and, and they did look at that underlying thing and they ran with it. So even though you can find a lot of what Stirner argued in the existentialist philosophers, they took most of it from Kierkegaard. They're much more influenced directly by Kierkegaard because he did it so systematically, this notion of, look, you're in this impossible position. For Stirner, being an individual helps. For Kierkegaard, it doesn't necessarily help that much. You must be an individual, but it doesn't solve your problem. So um, he embraced open-eyed, like really open-eyed, many of the core issues of the modern world. And that's where all of a sudden, after he dies, and his works start to circulate and become more popular and more read outside of Denmark, um, all of a sudden you got, people are going, wow, look at this. He's clearly articulated the kinds of problems that we find ourselves stuck with. But by the time you get to the next generation of philosophers and thinkers, most of them have no association with the church whatsoever, except for some people like Heidegger. Um, and so they feel completely free to just ignore that. So again, they look at his critique and the problems that he lays out. They love this reading of Genesis. Yeah, somebody gave us freedom. We didn't ask for it. We didn't say we wanted it, right? Here's the thing. We are born into the world. Here's some freedom. Knock yourselves out. Well, what am I supposed to do with it? Notice this is the opposite of freedom. What you're supposed to do with it, if someone tells you, well, that's not freedom. If you're free to choose, then that's just taking it under advisement. Oh, okay, they have an idea, they have an idea, they have an idea, they have an idea, and what are you going to do? I, it's, it's, uh, uh, I think last year I, I was talking about somehow in Costco in one of our materialism lectures, and, how, and somebody, one of the people afterwards said, the great thing about Costco is there's no choice. Right? They have one or two of everything in huge sizes. And it's so liberating, right, to just go, oh, I don't have a hundred choices. I have one or two. I can say yes or no, this or that, and I'm done. What a relief, right? At some point, we don't want or we struggle with all of this freedom that we have. Because we, because we don't have a, a, a narrative, we don't have an arc, we don't have an answer for the questions that Kierkegaard asked so particularly. So like Socrates, he was a brilliant framer and an analyzer of the contemporary problems that his society was facing. The fact that the church was moribund and no one really believed in it was true. The church was moribund and nobody really believed in it the way they had three or four generations before. Like I said, they didn't burn people at the stakes anymore. My, my favorite example is right around the turn of the century, they finally had an international ecumenical council of all the religions of the world to get together and chat, which just shows that nobody believes in anything anymore. Right? History is you kill those people because they're wrong. <laughs> right? And all of a sudden it's like, oh, no, everybody's right. It's all fine. Let's all live happily, which I think is a good idea, by the way. But for a thinker like Kierkegaard, it just shows that they don't believe any longer. He also looked around and he said, oh yeah, look, all these people have gotten a lot of freedom. What are they doing with it? Nothing very impressive. Right? So you finally liberated humanity, or, or a good portion of it at his time, more today. And all we can do is say, oh look, I've got nice shoes. My house is bigger than my neighbor's house. Right? He's like, that's kind of crappy use of freedom. And he said, even our sins are tiny. Right? You know, invade a foreign country or do something really wrong. Right? Have some good sins. You know, there's just, you know, get out there. Right? He, he just thought it was contemptible. Um, all the compromises, all the social poses, all of the hypocrisy. And so one of the things he's doing with, with sarcasm and writing on every... is he's trying to attack and expose the hypocrisy. 
He's trying to say, oh, you, you talk about that women are terrible and sinful, except for everybody's at the brothel. And everybody knows everybody's at the brothel. Everybody knows everybody at the brothel. Everybody, it's all public, but it's all private. And he's like, either make it public or burn it down. But this sort of wishy-washy smallness drove him mad. Um, in, in this case, in very one small way, he, he was like Nietzsche. And that he looked around the world and he thought, wow, we should be doing so much better. But it really drove him mad that they weren't. Nietzsche was much better able to deal with it than Kierkegaard. He wanted an ideal, perfect world that he wasn't going to get. Because it's not that kind of world. You may have noticed this. Uh, and so if your options are embrace it, love it, work with it, yourself and the world, um, no, that was not his option. That was, again, this is more the argument that Nietzsche makes. Kierkegaard goes the other way. Given the same problem, he goes the other direction and says, no, you've got to rail against it. You've got to hate yourself. You've got, to, you've got to hate your society. You've got to rail against them. You've got to do something to galvanize people to be not worms uh, and to return to this personal relationship with God who, as they say, in theory, we are made in that image. That critique continues. Um, that is a really powerful critique. Uh, one way to look at it and, and, and understand how we receive it today, even if you've never heard of Kierkegaard, is the notion of, oh, what are elites supposed to do? Right? Are you supposed to make a blended, stable society? Or are you supposed to pursue excellence? Which is the better path, right? How is an individual supposed to integrate themselves into society? Kierkegaard says no. That's how. <laughs> don't. Integration. Society is wrong. You don't integrate into wrong. You rail against it. This is where a thinker like Goethe says, oh, the key is to learn how to live a pleasant life within the context of the culture you're given. Someone like Beethoven is like, no, light it on fire, right? Just fight the whole way through. Kierkegaard was the just fight the whole way through. Um, driven by this sense of despair and sort of hate and fear and anxiety, but also this, this just sort of sustained rage to make things different, to make them ideal. Um, and so, again, if, if, if you're more familiar, most people, like I said, are familiar with Sartre, uh, and de Beauvoir, and you know that notion of okay, what is it someone should do? What is the responsibility that someone has? And so often they write about isolated individuals and isolated places making specific decisions. Not about oh, if you look at someone like Hegel or Schopenhauer or Kant, they're writing about huge abstract systems, world mind development, uh, in, in getting in touch with the ineffable spirit of all time that grows in you and, and you come from it, or complete rational systems. All, it's all these huge, totalizing, world-spanning, universe-embracing. And then you get this amazing change where it becomes very particular. That note, again, like Socrates versus Aristotle. Right? If you read Socrates, he's always talking to a particular person about a particular thing on a street corner. If you read Aristotle, he's always in some logical abstraction about some 17 categories of something <laughs> that is going to give you insight into some aspect of the world. Uh, Kierkegaard's example, which he was very much opposed to Hegel, he said, look, reason is not going to get you there. This systems is nonsense. I want no part of any system that totalizes. I want a system that's about me and my relationship to the universe and particularly to his God. And so he moves it very far back to like, no, we don't need a totalizing system. We need individuals and really press that home. And so it did shift philosophy for a lot of philosophers. They went, oh, hey, wait, we can go back to the particular. We can go back to the individual arguing a place in society. Again, it's hard for us to feel what, what it was like then, but, it, but that notion that you have to have totalizing systems for everything, that's, just, that, that, that's why you can't Kant, Hegel, Schopenhauer, Plato, Aristotle. That's that tradition. 
Kierkegaard brought back the Socratic idea. No, crazy, irascible individual um, that then many of the philosophers that we read there ran with. Even someone like Martin Buber, the sort of uh, more popular, he's sort of fallen off the map a bit, but, you know, biblical exegetical thinker there, you know, re rethinking translations and Bibles and all that. You know, he's, he's looking at, he, you know, there's great parable that he tells about, um, you know, Isaac and any, many of the Bible stories that come from Kierkegaard. Like I said, Buber, as a theologian, felt that he had to engage this. He had to write about it. That like, God, this guy's taken over our territory. He must be responded to. We've, even if they disagreed with him, they had to fight with him. I'll give you two more examples of his influence. One, um, it, again, I mentioned Derrida there. But if you think about someone like Kafka, so much, probably everybody knows the metamorphosis, if you know anything, the, the, the metamorphosis where the guy, uh, one morning Gregor Samso woke in bed to discover he had been transformed into a giant cockroach. Uh, insect in the original German, but cockroach in the, in the translation, which I think works quite well. Um, and, and that notion of, wow, I've been turned into a bug. I'm in this impossible position. My social setting causes me anxiety and despair. I'm no longer, that is pure Kierkegaard. Absolute Kierkegaard's, you know, emotional, psychological state translated into a short story. A wonderful, amazing, powerful short story. But I am a bug, a crawly bug. I am alienated and anxiety prone and filled with stress and despair. And the reason it's so famous is because it captures some sense, Kafka's writing captures some senses of our feeling of being lost in the modern world. We're always displaced somehow. Um, and so you go from that extreme to Wittgenstein's endless ramblings on the question of being. What does it mean to be? What does it mean to exist? Where are we in time? How do we, how do we, you know, how do we bring this up? How do we deal with it? Being in time, you know, all of these questions that he asked, again, just endless. He never answered any of them, by the way. Um, but he did ask them fervently. He's asking the questions. He's expanding on that set of Kierkegaard's arguments. But he's trying to solve them without God. He doesn't have the magic card to play at the end. So this is how an obscure writer, more poet and essayist, than philosopher for certain, who wrote in Danish, an obscure European language, uh, has come to be one of the most important thinkers for influencing pretty much most of the modern philosophy that you've heard of and read, and many of the writers like, like uh, Kafka, because he, was, he, he saw the problems, he faced them squarely from every side in this weird, bizarre way that was him, uh, and he came up with an answer that everybody ignores. And we just, everybody's been arguing his problems and just ignoring his theoretical answer. So, there it is, uh, Kierkegaard. Thank you. Yeah. <clears throat>